Like many girls, my teen years were tough with my mom. I don't think it was extraordinary, but maybe exacerbated by my parents being divorced. It was at times hard and volatile, and we both said yucky things to each other. After I graduated from high school, my dad went to seminary to become a priest, and I moved to Seattle to go to the University of Washington. In 1999, I hadn't seen my mom in a while when she stopped through for a visit. I was nervous. She was nervous. It was a purposely short visit, just in case. But it turned out great, and we began to understand what it was to be in relationship as adult women. Still, it took a while for both of us to live into the close relationship we have now. In 2001, I started to recognize a call to the priesthood. It took a while because my dad was a priest, and it wasn't the shiny, glamorous life that one might imagine the priesthood to be. One of the reasons I told God I wouldn't be a priest was that my dad was also single, and dating as clergy is uh, complicated. <laughs> Luckily, God didn't send a whale or lions, but rather Orion, the man I would marry. So there I was in my 20s, discerning the priesthood and living with my boyfriend. And because I lived in a different state, I could shush all of it when my mom called. I waited until it felt unreasonable to keep it from her. And then probably in one breath or so, I gasped out, I think I'm supposed to be a priest and I'm living with my boyfriend. <laughs> and if you didn't catch all that, as my mom may not have, it was, I think I'm supposed to be a priest and I'm living with my boyfriend. As I had prepared for this call, I thought she'd be most upset about the boyfriend. Of course she would, right? But I will never forget her first and immediate response. Oh my gosh. First, my ex-husband, and now my daughter. What did I do to deserve this? <laughs> As it turned out, what I didn't imagine was true. The priesthood gave me cover for living with my boyfriend. She spent the next several months trying to convince me to pursue other excellent professions like pharmacist. She really wanted me to be a pharmacist. You see how that worked out. I think when hard moments come, when we face loss of people or relationships or hoped-for dreams, it's easy to wonder what God was thinking. Why? Why would you do this to me? There's a whole genre about books. Uh, there's a whole genre of books about why God allows bad things to happen to good people. And we land in lots of different places, right? How many of you have heard Everything happens for a reason in a moment of struggle. It's usually a well-intentioned thing that people say to fill an awkward gap at a moment when we can't think of words to make a sad situation better. Does it work? Worse still is one that my deeply devout Grandma Price used to say. She was a Nazarene through and through. She went to church all the time. She was profoundly Nazarene, if that's a thing. And she would say dramatically, 
I guess it's my cross to bear. <laughs> it usually dramatically followed something she wanted you to feel bad about, like misbehaving or failing to meet her expectations, or even she lost her wedding ring at some point, and at that time, Nazarenes believed that you couldn't wear jewelry, and she felt like it was God taking it back from her. So any of these moments would warrant the big, dramatic, I guess it's my cross to bear. And I want to go back in time and say, no, Grandma, that's not what Jesus meant. Jesus is in a crowd of people and tells them that he will endure great suffering, be rejected, killed, and rise again. And Peter, his devout follower and close friend, pulls him aside and says, no, Jesus, don't say this. It could be that Peter doesn't want it to be true or that he doesn't want Jesus to say it in front of others or that he's trying to fill the awkward space after Jesus declares this awful thing will happen. But Jesus rebukes him, calling him Satan. Satan? Get behind me, Satan, he says. Yikes, right? Oh my gosh. No, Peter. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This bit of scripture is sometimes used to justify suffering. Perhaps God was testing my grandma with naughty kids and the loss of her ring, and she proved her devotion by continuing to believe. But it's hard to preach the God of love and then imagine a God who requires proof so painfully wrought. Do we punish our friends and families to see how much they love us? Can we imagine God in God's perfection doing so? It's hard to imagine Jesus, who understood human suffering so deeply that he brought healing to all those he met, requiring us to hurt for him. Jesus understood the pain of loving in this broken world. He understood that free will sometimes means that we will choose a way that hurts ourselves and others. While Jesus' final moments are the pain that he refers to here, we know that the, his earthly life required regular sacrifice. Over and over, his heart is broken open by the way people treat each other, by the suffering people endure from illness, by the hardness of heart and the pain of loss. And instead of promising to us that he will die so that we will hurt no more, he tells us that fully living, fully following our Creator will mean pain because sometimes 
life hurts. Growing and stretching physically and emotionally requires us to tear, sometimes to the point of breaking, sometimes actually breaking and being healed. People who haven't endured ache and longing, depths of despair or deeply painful wounds that threaten to consume them lack the ability to empathize. Jesus wept for and with the hurting and sends us, us, to find the poor, the disenfranchised, the aching, the needy. He tells us to meet them where they are and to sit with them in their pain. And know that whether we are the wounded and the hurting when we are the crying teenage girl or the crying mother of a teenager, when we are misunderstood or lonely, whether we have lost something promised or someone we love dearly, that God is there with us. God hurts and misses and weeps for and with you and I when we are brokenhearted. I don't think my mom still feels punished by God because of the clergy in her life. We haven't had that conversation in a while, so I'm not positive, but it was not what she expected. Like many immigrants, she hoped that my life growing up in America would mean a comfortable life. And she didn't think that the priesthood would be the easy life she hoped for me. We know that it is hardship that builds character. And still many of us want our children to have character without hardship. Jesus understands that the character of following God is built on suffering and strife, on, is built on the suffering and strife of devotion to God's creation. He knows that loving people is going to hurt and tells us so. And he does it anyway. He shows us that it can be done and that he survived it and that we will too. And he walks with us while we do. Let us set our minds on heavenly things and take up our cross and follow Jesus.